Okay, good morning again. If you would, you can turn over to the book of Acts, chapter 2, will be our text. But let's pray first this morning. Father, help me as your servant, as a teacher, as a pastor, to do just that, to teach, to unfold your word, to unfold the, the treasures treasures of who you are and how you reveal yourself. May we see, may we marvel, may we bow, and may we rejoice this morning in that which we see, to the glory, and that all glory go to your name. Amen. Last week, in Acts chapter 2, if you remember, we covered all of verse 14 through verse 41. We saw the forest, the, the forest of Peter's whole sermon and the saving response of those to whom he was preaching. We saw that it was true for them that day and that it's true now in our day that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord to be saved from judgment, to be saved from their sin, whoever does that will be saved. At the end of Peter's sermon, we saw that 3,000 were baptized. Next week, here at Sovereign Grace, we're going to be baptizing three persons who have called upon the name of the Lord to be saved. Now, this morning, we're going to see this, that precious, clear, to some of us, truths, important truths, they always have their controversies, particularly in the history of the church. And this morning we're going to turn to one of those because it's unavoidable. I, I think it's unavoidable if we read slowly and clearly the actual words that Luke gives us of Peter's first sermon. What is embedded in Peter's very first sermon is the doctrine of God's absolute sovereignty particularly over the idea of absolute sovereignty of the human free will. It is the great given of the gospel that God's will, not man's will, is ultimate over all the happenings of human history, and in particular, as it relates to the salvation of souls. And so to get at the gist of this issue this morning, I'm going to read chapter 2, verses 21 to 23, and then verses 37 to 39. Peter, finishing up his quote of Joel, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. 
Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. Blessed is the reading of God's holy, infallible Word. Getting a clear vision of the Bible's teaching on God's sovereignty affects our whole understanding of God and of humanity and of salvation itself. Since God has chosen to reveal these truths to us through the Holy Scripture, we would be foolish to think that they are impractical for the daily Christian life. To think that they're merely for a classroom in the seminary. Just academic. And not real life practical in the cauldrons of pain, suffering, slowly dying, living, and evangelizing. They are practical, and I will come to those at the end of the sermon. But in a nutshell, what I want you to see first, just real quickly, within a, a minute and a half, where we're going. What we see unfolding in this very first Christian sermon ever preached is this. First, God is sovereign. In absolute control over all things. Even the evil, the sinful, the judgment-worthy actions of human creatures. Secondly, this sovereign God has given and today is giving an open invitation to all sinners everywhere, including in this room, the invitation to call upon Him for salvation. And the promise is this. Every person who does that, to call upon the Lord, will be saved. And thirdly, 
The Apostle Paul, I mean Peter, in this sermon reveals that everyone who does call upon the Lord to be saved, they do so precisely because they were first called to that faith by the sovereign God. So that no one will have any actual grounds to boast. So, let's go to it. Remember, Peter opens up his sermon by quoting the prophet Joel. And as he then finishes his quote, he goes into the the life and the ministry of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus. And his main point at this this juncture in the sermon is to say, you, my, my brothers, My fellow Jews, you have killed him by the hands of the Gentiles. But he doesn't just say that. He, though that's his main point, he inserts these paradigm-shifting, life-shattering words. Verse 23. This Jesus... Delivered up to death according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This Jesus you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now, by the plan, the boule, the purpose or the, of God, it's modified. Here's a literal, very unorthodox kind of, it didn't sound right, but this is literally how it goes. By the having been determined, boule, or plan, purpose of God. So the New American Standard Bible is absolutely correct in translating it. Jesus Delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you killed. And just a few weeks later, or a month or two later, Luke records how these Christians prayed in their large prayer gathering in chapter 4, verse 27 to 28. This is what they thought as they would address God boldly. For truly in this city, Father... There were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. Who was gathered together? Both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. They were gathered together, verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. It was the predestined plan of God that killed Jesus. Nothing, not even the trial and the suffering 
in the death of Jesus, absolutely nothing happens outside of the predetermined plan of God. No wonder the Apostle Paul, many years later, would write in Ephesians 1.11, to, to us who do believe, we've called upon the Lord, we're Christians, we're in Christ. And he says to us this, in Christ we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. God's decree, let me just define that for you the way I'm using it. When God, the Sovereign One, without beginning and without end, and omniscient and omnipotent, when he, when his will, let me define, say a difference, a distinction between the, the his will of decree, when he decrees something, it cannot not be. Okay. It's distinct from his will of command or his will of prescription. In other words, my will, you shall not murder. People break that will. Absolutely. It's His will of prescription. It's His will of command to the creature. It's different than His will of decree. So, hopefully you grasp that. God's decree of what will actually happen, what will actually be in His creation, clearly includes the sinful acts of people. We see that in our text. And yet, God Himself is not sinful in so decreeing. Now see, I say because our creaturely Finite human minds respond with something like, well, if God wills with His will of decree that sin, the sin of Judas, happen, and the sin of the Sanhedrin, and the sin of Pilate, to put Jesus to death, well, then God is sinning by decreeing that it happen. And that's just shallow thinking. There is no such thing as sin. If there is no God, there's no such thing as right or wrong or bad or unholy if there is not the God of the Bible who does exist. All sin, even as it affects horizontally other human beings, is first and foremost defined by its relationship to God in His glory. And that's why we are culpable, every one of us in this room, for our sin. We are guilty precisely because our thoughts and our actions are against God. Against 
His holiness and His glory. As Paul says, all have sinned. Every one of us and have fallen short of the glory of God. That's at the essence of what sin is. But if God acts not against His glory, but for His glory, to uphold His glory, to extend His glory, then He is not sinful in doing so. But He is the essence of holiness and righteousness. And therefore, if God wills that sin exists for the extension and the expansion of His glory shown through mercy to sinful creatures, and that's His goal, well then He is righteous in all His ways to expand His glory that way. It is sin to sin. But it is not sin to decree as God that sin be for the purpose of uplifting and extending the glory of God. Well, just think about this way for a moment. Here's the reality. We live in the world in which we live. Which, if you wake up to history and to the present, it's terrible. It is horrific here where we live. And if God did not decree that sin be, and there is a major flaw in this universe that He could not prevent even though He wanted to. And God would not be, therefore, omnipotent. There would be an evil power or an evil entity that is equal to or greater than God is that prevents Him from accomplishing His purpose, His will. If you say, well, God could have present, prevented sin from happening, but He did not. For whatever reason you're going to put in there at this moment, He could have, but He did not. Well, then clearly, He decreed sin to be. He willed it to be. If you try to get God off the hook and say, well, God didn't decree that sin be. He only permitted it by giving human beings ultimate, sovereign, autonomous free will, then it's just semantics. Because he, if that, if just go with that for a moment, he did not unwillingly permit it. But he willingly permitted. So Judas, in his sin, Pilate, in his sin, the Sanhedrin, the crowd yelling, crucify him. They were all sinning. And they were all responsible 
for their own sin. And yet, as Peter says in the very first Christian sermon, it was the predetermined plan of God. And this is not to say, well, okay, yeah, of course God decrees all things because He is omniscient and He knows all things. He foreknows beforehand everything that will happen. So in that sense, it's determined, thus predetermined. This is not exactly the point right now. We're just talking about some kind of philosophical game here. Obviously, God knows all things. You're outside the bounds of the Christian orthodoxy. Let some go when they start to deny, as they have in recent decades, God's omniscience. Obviously, He knows everything in advance. But God did not make up His will of decree based upon something prior. His response to what He foresaw, autonomous creaturely agents do and then say, because I foreknow it, I decree it. Can you imagine God looking down the hallways of time and seeing apart from His counsel and will of what will be to, to, to see, oh my gosh, I can't believe how sinful they became to where they would crucify my son. I foresaw it. Okay, now let me kind of make lemonade out of lemons and turn it for good. Okay, I'll use that now to save. But, but he couldn't prevent Jesus' death. He just could not stop it. Because after all, he gave to men autonomous free will. And he dare not violate it. The cross of Jesus was not plan B. Oh well, now that I see what will happen, I'm a great chess player and I'll make this move and save people through Judas and Pilate in the Sanhedrin. No. Nor did God see in advance who it is that would believe in Jesus by their own totally disconnected, autonomous, free will, and then say, it is those ones, now that I see it, I will choose. They're my elect. Since I, God, see down the hallway of time into the future, who it is that would first choose me. That would plainly contradict what the Scripture asserts that all of us human beings since Adam are fallen creatures. We are sinful to the core. And at the very core of our sinful nature to, with which we come into this world is zero genuine desire for God. For the one true God. Our wills by nature are always against God. 
and thus by nature, we are unable to choose God in Christ apart from a heart transplant called new birth. The Apostle Paul declares in Romans 3, none is righteous. No, not even one. No one gets it or understands. No one seeks for God. Yes, they do. Well, no, they don't. But I know, I'm going to go with Scripture on that one. Romans 8, 7 8, Paul says, For the mind that is set on the flesh, okay, this is the mind apart from the work of the Holy Spirit that he's referring to, Romans 8. The mind that is set on the flesh is, here it is, it's identity here, is what? Hostile to God. Because it, the mind, without the Spirit, it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it can not. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural person. All of us are natural persons born into this world before any of us are born again. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, like the Gospel of Jesus Christ. For, why? They, that is the things of the Spirit of God, which he's referring to Scripture ultimately here in truth, for they are foolishness to him or to her. Indeed, excuse me, I'm sorry. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Can't without God's grace coming first by the Holy Spirit. And finally, Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. So, there is no hallway down through which God would look in his omniscience and see who it is that would really like him and come to him and say, I'm so happy Jesus died for me. Sounds right to me. There is no such possibility that that would happen before God would choose them, change them. And this word foreknowledge, according to his predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, this happened. Foreknowledge in Scripture does not merely mean to know something beforehand. It often, even just the word know in Scripture means choose. 
For instance, in Genesis, Abraham only have I. But in some translations, decide, because that's what good exegesis or biblical interpretation, yeah, he means choose. And they will translate it, choose. Others just keep it more woodenly. It is the word to know. Abraham only have I known. Okay, that's not God saying, I'm not omniscient. I don't know anybody else. It's the way of saying, I have this unique relationship of knowing Him. Paul declares in Romans 8, 29, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. It is God's sovereign choice to enter into personal, saving relationship with the object of His foreknowledge in that sense. Or, therefore, the way He uses it in this text, when Peter says Christ was delivered up according to the definite plan and according to the foreknowledge of God, He means God chose before time. He chose before creation that the Son, His Son, would die for our sins by the wills and hands of sinful human beings. If salvation depends on us ultimately as fallen sinners to believe the gospel, then we're in really big trouble. Scripture's clear that our wills, before we are saved, they are enslaved to sin. Unable to do anything to please God. Ephesians 2, either listen or read slowly. Paul teaches us, and he's talking or writing to those who have called upon the name of the Lord to be saved, who are born again, who are in Christ, who have come to love Him. He says this, starting with verse 1, And you were dead, not just unconscious. You were dead, in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all of us Christians once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath, judgment, just like the rest of mankind. And since believing in Jesus Christ is pleasing to God, the natural man cannot do that apart from God imparting saving faith to him or to her. That, just, just read on to the next verse now. That's why Paul goes on now, he says, but, but God, being rich,
rich in mercy. Now he's talking to Christians now. So hear this, Christian. Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, okay, made us alive. So that's beautiful stuff Paul puts in there about God's very special love. But just take it out for a moment because where's the subject of the verb? It's God. Where's the verb? Made us alive. But God made us alive together with Christ. And then he just has to just pause everything and insert it. Do you get it? By grace. Grace alone. By grace you have been saved. And, and here's the next verb. And He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him, Jesus, in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And so in this very first Christian sermon, about the death of Jesus and human sin, God is not reacting. He is absolutely sovereign and in control. Which brings us, brings Peter to the gospel, to the good news of Jesus Christ. This very absolutely in control of all things God, He gives an open invitation to every sinner to call upon Me and I will save you. Verse 21, chapter 2. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Verse 39, Peter will go on to say, For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are, who are far off. Everyone is a really broad term. This makes it a really broad invitation. Come, be saved. He doesn't say, everyone except really bad sinners. He doesn't say, everyone, well, except if you're a Pharisee who takes all of his energy and time to persecute my people, the church. This invitation is even open to Saul of Tarsus, who became the Apostle Paul. In the context, remember, Peter's, Peter's quoting this Joel passage. And there's also in that passage that he quotes a promise of the judgment that is coming upon deserving sinners. 
And so this, and it shall come to pass, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, is for those persons listening to Peter on that day. And to all sinners everywhere, far off down through the generations. That this open invitation is offered and being offered still today. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now that call upon Him, the core of that invitation is to cry out to the Lord from the context here, from sal for salvation, from what? From guilt, from the judgment that is to come. And therefore, this calling out to the Lord, it requires first that one see, recognize their own sinfulness. That they are guilty before God and under His condemnation. Because if a person doesn't see that, in the hearing of this Gospel Peter preaches, they will not call upon the Lord to be saved. Secondly, that call implies you know something about the Lord. Are you going to call upon Him and whom you never heard? You know, so you need to hear about Him and hear Him preached. And, and Lord here in the Hebrew of Joel is Yahweh. So clearly the Lord, you, you come to know He is the God of creation in Genesis. The only one true God. He's the God of Abraham. He's the God of Moses. He is the God who predetermined and planned the crucifixion of Jesus from the death. That is Yahweh. And you are also to know according to this glorious gospel sermon of Peter's that this Lord is Jesus who grew up in that little nowhere town called Nazareth, who was killed, raised from the dead, and exalted to the seat of all authority and power over the universe. So to call upon Jesus implies faith. I trust the testimony of His resurrection and His ability to save me, acquit me from guilt. I was born with condemnation or the wrath of God by nature hanging over me. And you call upon Him. And so, brings us to the third main thing Peter does. And it's those first two, the sovereignty of God and this wide open invitation to all sinners, absolutely true with the promise, if you do this, if you call upon Him, you will be saved. And it comes together in verse 39 of Acts 2. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. That is, it's for everyone whom 
the Lord our God calls to Himself. That's stunning. And He's not dyslexic. He didn't just make a mistake and get the word called in the wrong place. The actor of this call is God. The actor of the other call back in verse 21 is us sinners to call upon Him. Here, He says, it's God who calls. That promise, that promise of the Holy Spirit is for everyone. whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. Everyone who calls upon the Lord for salvation does so because the sovereign God of the universe first called them to Himself. Like the persecutor of the church, Paul. When the Apostle Paul then, later on now, lays out what in the world is happening in the preaching of the gospel, this is how he says it. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 21 to 24. For since... In the wisdom of God, the world, we're all fallen, God-haters by nature, even if very religious. The world did not know God through wisdom. Mm -mm. Therefore what? It pleased God through the foolishness of what we preach. It, pre, it pleased Him through the foolishness of the Gospel to save those who believe. And then he goes on. So Paul, he's a missionary. It's what he does. He goes to the Jew first, and then to the Gentile. Jew first, Gentile. And here's his experience. For Jews, they demand signs. Greeks seek wisdom. But we, we don't cater to it. We preach Christ crucified. The result? To those born into this world as natural sinners and no change? The result is that it's a stumbling block to Jews. And it's foolish or stupid to everybody else. And no one gets saved because they must believe and they won't. Except for what he says next. But, 
to those who are called. To those who are called. As Peter said, the promise is for everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. Paul, but to those who are called from among both Jews and Greeks, to them something changed. To them, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And then, Paul links all of this together in that great chapter, Romans 8, starting with verse 30. Paul looks at the large forest of God saving people and strings it out there, saying it this way, For whom He foreknew, He also predestined. And those whom He predestined, here it is. He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. Wait, wait a minute. Justified them apart from them having saving faith? No, there's no such thing. He's made that clear in Romans. But everyone He calls, He justifies. And there's no way around it. Everyone He calls is justified must mean everyone He calls comes to saving faith. And those whom He justified, He also did glorify. And happened yet. Do you believe in this sovereign God? If you do, and your belief is accurate about Him, it's going to happen. It cannot not. If you're justified, you will get a resurrected body one day. Now, listen up. Paul's not done. He goes on. He says, Christian, then what? What then shall we say to these truths? We'll say this. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who can bring a charge against God's elect? Even if there is horror that lay before you, from here to the grave. And that's where he goes next, right? You will be glorified one day. And so, the point of this very first sermon and how it would apply to us is this. If you are a believer, if you have called upon the name of the Lord for salvation, But you're meant to go on and to know that it is because He first called you. Now, 
people who grow up in a church like this that is not ashamed to say things like that, I want to give a, parent, a parenthesis here of, of warning. Don't let the devil cause you to turn around what I just said. What I said is this. If you have called upon the name of the Lord, it is because he first called you. Don't let the enemy of your soul cause you to think you must discern whether God has called you before you call upon the name of the Lord. No! That's a lie! You are to call upon the name of the Lord. That's your duty. God's choosing, God's calling is God's business alone. The fact is this. God through Jesus Christ offers eternal and everlasting mercy to everyone. Call upon me and you shall be saved. If you want that, then it is yours for the receiving. All who call upon Him will be saved. But Peter's not afraid in the very first Christian sermon to end it with these words. And it's to everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Because as you look up a year later after coming to Jesus or 20 or 30 years later and you see that, then you will revel all the more how deep his tender personal love and care is for you as your Father, as your Lord and your Savior, and you will be more open then to give all the praise and glory to God. Which is the purpose, ultimately. And Paul makes that clear in Ephesians 1, 5-6 when he says to us believers, He predestined us for adoption to Jesus, excuse me, for adoption to Himself, as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will. And here's His goal. To the praise of His glorious grace. This is why the great Apostle Paul, in numbers of his letters, they're not just words thrown out. There's a logic to what he's saying. Therefore, no man can boast. And so, why is it that 
in the very first Christian sermon that we're given here on the day of Pentecost, God's sovereignty comes up. And it, why does it come up at all? Sovereign over everything. Even the sin of those who murdered Jesus. And then particularly in the salvation of individual souls. Well, the only answer I could really think of is because it is part of the understanding of what the gospel of grace is. And not only that, to understand that comes with practical applications. I have five, and I'll close with them. God's sovereignty over all things, and particularly in the salvation of any of us. Its first application is this. That truth gives all glory to God. If any of us in here think that we came to Christ somehow apart from God first loving us, savingly, choosing us, calling us effectually by changing our heart, then we do have grounds to boast in how brilliant we are. And smarter than my siblings who haven't done that, friends I grew up with who haven't done that, children or parents or workmates. Or... I'm brighter. Is there any more important truth in all of existence about where you will spend eternity? Okay. I found it. You didn't. And it's because somehow I figured it out. Or you want to go the moral way. No, no, no. That's not really, it's not about brightness. It's, just, it's that people want to go on in their sexual sin or 10,000 other ways of living and they don't want to be held accountable. Okay, so, but you do? <laughs> Why? Oh, you're a little bit more moral. Better than they are. Therefore, you came to a place of saying, yeah, I'll let you hold me accountable. And you have room to boast. Which brings to the second, very connected to that. God's effectual call, meaning when He calls, He causes what He's calling for. Come to me. God's effectual call of saving faith it is the only hammer that smashes all of our pride. I can quote tons of text on that. I'll just quote one of the most famous. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, and it just, it's so clear in the original text, that this refers to grace and faith. In this whole ball of wax, grace and faith is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It's not a result of works. 
so that no one may boast. Which brings me to the third application. Peter says, and to all whom the Lord calls to himself. You think about that truth, dear believer. That's the bedrock of the assurance of our salvation. If your initial coming or even staying in Jesus depends ultimately upon the strength of your own autonomous free will, then your persevering, put it in Jesus' words here, your persevering to the end in order that you may be saved, that's on really shaky ground. But if it depends on God's sovereign purpose, upon His effectual calling and His ongoing preservation and keeping power in you, then you can be assured that Philippians 1.6 is true. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. And the fourth application. I don't think there is any deeper comfort for true lovers of Jesus the truth that God is sovereign over the big and the small trials of our lives. As horrible as Jesus' experiences were, they ultimately were the predetermined plan of God. And so are all the happenings of every one of His sheep. Paul says, you know it by heart. And we know, just stop there, you see, to know the truth of this. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are, here it is again, for those who are called according to His purpose. And finally, the doctrine of God's sovereignty in salvation encourages us to evangelize. To evangelize our children, our families, our friends, our co-workers in the world. Why? Because we know that God will save His elect as we proclaim the gospel. If salvation depends on human beings ultimately, for them, by their own autonomous powers, to see the light of the gospel, 
apart from God the Holy Spirit, then we have no guarantee that anyone from here on out will ever be saved. But instead, like Paul, we'll say it's just a stumbling block and it's just foolishness. But if it does depend on God's will and God's working in new birth by the Holy Spirit in order to believe, then we know that He will use the Gospel to save many. And it gives us confidence not to manipulate the Gospel, but to preach it unashamedly and clearly, no matter what time or age or generation we live in, no matter what danger, no matter how you may be viewed in any particular culture for holding to this one glorious, salvific message. And that's why the Lord Jesus Himself, if you remember in Acts, came to Paul and He encouraged Paul, Paul, don't leave Corinth. Don't leave here. I know it's frustrating for you right now. Don't leave. Keep preaching because, Paul, I have many people in this city. Keep preaching and they'll show up. You'll see. And Luke himself is so convinced of God's sovereignty and salvation, he writes this in Acts chapter 13, verse 48 commenting on Paul and Barnabas's missionary journey in the region of Galatia. And I think they're coming out, of, this is in the, the, the city of Pisidian Antioch. He says this, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And then Luke says this stunning thing. And as many as were appointed to eternal life, Believed. Didn't say that the other way around. And then Paul sums up his own ministry. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10, this way. The Word of God is not bound, and therefore I endure everything. In what? In going and preaching and risking his life and imprisonment and everything. I endure everything for the sake of the elect. So that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. And so no wonder the Apostle Peter ends his very first sermon with the application. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. So, God's arms are open wide to every sinner it is in this room who has not embraced the Lord Jesus as your Savior. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come, let all who want to partake of everlasting, unending glory 
in human resurrection and holiness, delivered from sin then forever and ever by grace and mercy alone. Come, call upon the Lord, and you shall be saved. Father, You are good. Your ways cause us to marvel in sheer joyful wonder. And so, O oh, Sovereign Father, save, sanctify, cause us by the power of Your grace in the Holy Spirit and the Word of God to continue to grow up into holiness. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.